Uh, so we are going to end up primarily in 1 Kings this morning, if you want to turn in your Bible. Uh, but, uh, but before we do that, um, we're going to look back a little bit again at Deuteronomy 17. Uh, so before Israel had entered into the promised land, God gave them these instructions about what it should look like when they go to put a king over themselves. So from Deuteronomy 17, uh, starting in verse 14, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the left hand or either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the king. The king, as God envisioned him, as God describes him here, is not uh, necessarily a, a political or, or military leader. He is first and foremost the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. Uh, because ultimately they were supposed to be looking not to man for their, for their uh, economic might or their, or their military power, but they were supposed to be trusting God for those things. And they were... And they had the king to lead them in that trust, in looking to God for those things. And in this passage, we see four traps set out for the king, right? Four places that, that, that God says these kings are going to be um, tempted to fall into. Sex, money, power, pride, right? Those are the, that's the, those are the four that we saw outlined there. So the first king of Israel was Saul, right? And Saul fell into the trap of power. He thought that power came from his army rather than from God. And he also fell into the trap of money, right? He thought that a few good-looking sheep were worth more than obedience to God. But most importantly, when he was confronted with his sin, he did not repent. He got defensive, he justified himself, he shifted the blame, and because of his unrepentant heart, the kingdom was taken away from him and given to David instead. Now, David was, is described by the Bible as a man after God's own heart. But despite that fact, despite the inclination of his heart towards God, he still failed in some pretty spectacular ways. He fell into the trap of sex, right? Bathsheba. And that sin crippled his ability to spiritually lead his family, which led to Amnon's indiscretion. 
And that, his failure to deal with that situation, weakened his ability to govern his country, which we saw in Absalom's rebellion. So we have this personal, private sin of David that crippled his ability to lead his country well. But the difference, the difference with David was that when he is confronted with his sin, he repents. He acknowledges his sin. He cries out to God for forgiveness and willingly submits. He casts himself into the discipline that God imposes, trusting in God's goodness towards him. David says, whatever God has for me, I'm going to trust him for that. If that's discipline, I'll take it willingly, gladly. If this costs me my kingdom, I will take it willingly, gladly. He trusts God rather than himself. Because his heart desired God. His heart was inclined towards God. And so when he was confronted with his sin, when he was confronted with the ways that he had failed to conform himself to the pattern that God had laid out, he, he was devastated, right? He loves God. He loves everything about who God is. And his sin is a, is a failure, is a, is a deviation from that. And so he loves God and hates his sin. And because of this attitude that David has, God promised him that there would always be a king to sit on David's throne. And so at the end of David's life, Solomon, his son, is crowned king. We're going to pick up the story in uh, 1 Kings 3, starting in verse 5. So this is shortly after uh, Solomon is crowned king. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David my father, because he walked before you in righteous, in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? So God visits Solomon, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. Just ask for it, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon doesn't ask for power, right? He doesn't ask for wealth. But rather, he admits, I'm not up to this. I can't do this. God, I am utterly insufficient to govern your people. And he asks God for wisdom, for an understanding mind. Excuse me. So when we come before God, not in pride, but in humility, That's the right attitude, right? We don't come to God demanding. We don't come to God looking for for us to be enriched or to be made much of. But we ask that God would give us what we need to accomplish what it is that he has placed before us to do. So let's pick back up in verse 10. 
It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God gives Solomon wisdom. And we have, uh, we have a good chunk of wisdom in our Bibles that has come from Solomon, right? The majority of the Proverbs are attributed to him. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes um, details Solomon's pursuit of delight and satisfaction, his attempts to find basically what makes him happy in this world and how he ends up in a place where he says, uh, he says the whole duty, the whole point of man is to submit ourselves to the rule of God in everything that we do. We also have the Song of Solomon, which is a love story celebrating the relationship between a husband and a wife. And in addition to this wisdom, God gives Solomon what he didn't ask for. He gives him money. His personal income, aside from tribute and taxes, was somewhere on the order of, adjusted to today's rates, $1.5 trillion a year. Unbelievably, unfathomably wealthy. Gives him wisdom. He gives him money and he gives him power. Right? There is peace throughout the land. And the kingdom of Israel reaches the, the largest geographic boundaries that it would at any point. I think we have a map. Again, really small. But you can see that uh, it stretches all the way from modern-day Syria down to, the, down to the Red Sea. This is as large and as influential and as powerful as Israel is ever going to be in the Old Testament. And so because of his wisdom and because of what his money and his power and his influence allowed him to do, Solomon set about first building the temple Now, this was a tremendously huge, expensive undertaking. And at the end of it, God places his presence in the temple. The glory of the Lord comes down and fills the temple. Now, despite all of this, Solomon has a problem. We're going to read about this in 1 Kings 11 pages to the right there. So from Deuteronomy 17, right? Sex, money, power, pride. Be looking for one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, 
as was the heart of David, his father. So God said, don't marry the pagan women from the nations around you, or they will turn your hearts away. Exodus 34, Joshua 23, God says, don't do this or that will happen. So what does Solomon go and do? He does this and that happens. God told the king, God, God told the people, don't marry the pagan women from around you or they will turn your hearts away. God also told the king not to acquire many wives lest his heart turn away. So Solomon married many pagan women. I don't you know, many is a subjective term, right? I think we can all agree that 700 wives counts as many. Um, any disagreements there? No? Okay. 700 counts as a lot. Solomon married many pagan women, and what happened? They turned his heart away, just like God said would happen. What God says always comes to pass. So let's pick up in, uh, in verse 11. Therefore, so because of this, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statues that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So Solomon fell into this trap of, of sex, although in perhaps a different way than his father David did. And again, Solomon's sin was mostly a, a personal, private sin, right? This was not a, a sin of public policy, but this was a personal sin. And that personal, private sin was what was ultimately responsible for tearing apart the kingdom of Israel. Now, there was a young man in Solomon's court named Jeroboam. He was uh, this industrious rising star. He was in charge of the, uh, of the labor from the northern tribes, essentially the, the forced slave labor. And, uh, and this prophet, ends up finding him on the road uh, outside Jerusalem. And he t this prophet takes his shirt and he rips it into 12 pieces. And we're going to uh, pick up that story in verse 31. And he, that is the prophet, said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, so 10 pieces of his shirt. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David, his father, did. Uh, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler. I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes, 
Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom would be split. The tribe of Judah would be kept for David's line because of David's faithfulness to fulfill the promise that had been made to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. But these ten northern tribes would be given to Jeroboam because of Solomon's sin. And Jeroboam then, God says, if you will do what you are supposed to do, if you will walk as David walked, then I will, uh, what does he say? You shall reign over all that your soul desires. Now Solomon ends up hearing about this, and Jeroboam flees to Egypt. And we're going to pick up that story next week. Um, but in the life of Solomon, in his sin and in his fall, I think that there's three, there's three primary points that we, need to, um, that we need to be seeing here. The first is that God is sovereign. The second is that sin can be redeemed. And the third thing that we need to be seeing is that there is a better king. So we see in uh, in Isaiah 46, the prophet writes on behalf of God, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is sovereign over all things. And that extends, that extends to the kings that we're going to read about. It says in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God gives power where he will. Now, this is not always a blessing for the people who receive it, right? This power ends up, uh, spoilers, uh, this power ends up corrupting and ruining Jeroboam, right? But he gives Jeroboam that power as a judgment against Solomon. He takes that power away and gives it to somebody else. So he gives power where he will and he removes power where he will. And he removed that power from Solomon because of Solomon's personal disobedience to God's direction for his life. And because of that sin, his country would pay the price. So God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the rulers of this earth. So we need to remember then that our trust is in God. And our trust is not in any sort of a worldly ruler. Now to be fair, we don't know why 
we don't know why some of these earthly rulers come to power. Right? That's a valid question. Why, did, why was Hitler allowed to come to power? Why is the regime in North Korea permitted to oppress and to enslave the people the way that they do? I don't know the answer to that. But I know that they are there because God allows them to be there. And so we can trust, we can trust that God is accomplishing that which he set out to accomplish. His arm is not shortened, right? His hand is not too weak to remove them. He is sovereign over all of the nations. So God is sovereign, and sin can be redeemed. Sin can be redeemed. So if you remember David's sin with Bathsheba, that cost David a lot. Right? That cost him almost, it ended up costing him almost everything. But who was Solomon's mother? Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. Right? So out of David's sin, God caused Solomon to be raised up. And through Solomon, all of the remainder of the kings of Judah and the royal line of Christ. David sinned, absolutely. But he repented, and in his repentance, God redeemed that sinful action in such a way that he brought this beauty out of the ashes of David's sin, this life out of the death that he caused. He was forgiven, and his sin still had consequences, right? But God took what David and and ultimately what Satan had meant for evil, and he redeemed it, and he used that for good. He took what man meant for evil, and he used it for good. And so no matter how deep your sin runs, or my sin runs, no matter how wide it is, how public, how private, how heinous, how dirty, in the death of Christ, it is forgiven. In his resurrection, it is redeemed. Something ugly used to accomplish something beautiful. And friends, in his return, it will be ultimately destroyed. It will be brought to nothing. And so if we are willing to turn away, to repent of that sin, to leave it behind, to throw it aside, and to believe that Jesus can do these things, then we have them. If we believe that the death of Christ forgave our sins, then they are forgiven. If we believe that his resurrection has redeemed us, then we are redeemed. And if we believe that the return of Christ will be the end of sin, then it's done. It's finished. For us. And when we understand this, when we see this, then this gives us the ability, this gives us the, the, the courage, the strength that we need to be able to look upon the seriousness of our sin. We can look it full in the face and confront it. We can perform that searching and fearless moral inventory, calling sin, sin, and asking forgiveness. Because we can't make up for it, right? We can't make it right. We can't atone for it. But Christ has already done so. And that is the hope of the gospel, right? That we can leave our sin behind and trust in him rather than in ourselves. This story also leaves us longing for a better king. 
Anybody ever spend some time bagging potatoes? We had a, once we got mechanized, we used to do it the old fashioned way, picking them into a bag directly, but that, anyway. Once we got mechanized, we had a, a, a little hopper you could run with a foot control, right? Uh, I think that was the only piece of equipment my father ever bought new. And, uh, and you'd fill, fill a bag from a hopper. Now nominally, right, it's a, it's a five pound bag or a 10 pound bag or whatever it is. And so you fill the bag so that it has five pounds in it. And you weigh it and you check it and you sort it out. And you can get really good at that, right? You can get really good at figuring out just exactly what five pounds looks like and feels like in that bag. But you never get it to exactly five pounds. It might be an ounce or two or more than that, over or under, and it might be you know, even grams, grains of sand, but it's never going to be exactly five pounds. But rather, by handling a bunch of bags that are supposed to be five pounds and are almost five pounds, we can understand conceptually what five pounds of potatoes looks and feels like. And so likewise, by, by handling and looking at the lives of these kings, with all of their failures and all of their successes, we can better understand what it is that a true king, what a good ruler is supposed to look like. See, Saul, Saul looked like a king, right? But his heart was wrong, and he refused to submit to God's law. David had his heart right, but he couldn't seem to make wise choices. Uh, he repented, Right? Every time that he failed, he repented, but he still couldn't quite seem to keep it together. Now, Solomon had all of the wisdom that David lacked, but he didn't have his heart right. He had this misplaced love. His, his wrong heart led him astray. And so all of them so far have failed to honor God and to keep him first in everything. And so Israel ultimately needed a king who was perfectly submitted to God's law, who obeyed him in everything that he did, whose heart was perfectly turned towards God in everything that he set out to do. Israel needed a king who had great and perfect wisdom, understanding, and insight. So when we look at these three kings, even though they have each failed in their own unique ways and succeeded in different ways, we see a picture, an image of what that true king is supposed to look like. And it's this picture that we see fulfilled in Christ, the true king of Israel and of all creation. He is the standard by which all kings are measured, and he is the true king over all of them. And so when we, when we evaluate people for leadership in the home or in the church or in the state, at the local, at the state, at the national levels. We hold them up against the measure of Christ, the true king. Are they submitted to God's word? Or are they leaning on their own understanding, following their own path? Are their hearts turned towards God? Or are they turned towards something else? Are they exhibiting God-given wisdom? Or are they exhibiting the wisdom and the patterns of this world? Now, we will not... We will not ever find a leader who is perfectly doing all of these things, much less several hundred of them. But we have an obligation to pursue these things in the people that we choose to lead us. Because we, as God's people, 
are best served, we grow best, we further the kingdom best when we are led by individuals who most closely reflect the leadership of Christ. Not because they will save us, right? That's the point of Deuteronomy 17. These people aren't going to save us. They aren't going to bring military might. They aren't going to bring economic prosperity. No, what they are supposed to be doing is they are supposed to be pointing us to Christ, to the one who has already saved us. And it is before him, it is before Christ, that we and every other person on this earth will bow, proclaiming him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is in him alone that our faith, our hope, and our trust is ultimately placed in. Not in a husband or a father, not in a pastor, not in a country, and certainly not in a president. It is in Christ. It is in Christ that all of our hopes are ultimately going to be fulfilled and founded. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are prone. We are prone to set up idols in our hearts, God. We are prone to look to the things of this world, the things that you have created for our hope, for our salvation, for our peace. God, but none of these things can withstand that pressure. None of these things can bear that burden. God, they fail. They fall. They are broken. So, Father, we ask that we ask that we would be constantly in every area of our lives looking to you, looking to you for our peace, looking to you for our comfort, looking to you for our stability, looking to you for our righteousness. Father, we look to Christ and we place our trust and our hope fully in him. Father, we ask that you would be growing that in our hearts, God, that we would every day more perfectly look to him as the author and the sustainer of our faith, God, as the fulfillment and the satisfaction of everything that we want, that we hope, that we dream, that we need. Father, all these things are found in Christ. Help us to find them in him each day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.